from the feature staff at the Columbus Dispatch. This is Life in the 614. Hi, and welcome to Life in the 614, the official lifestyle podcast of the Features Department at the Columbus Dispatch, coming to you every Thursday. If it sounds like fun, we'll be talking about it. I'm Ryan Smith, Features Editor at the Dispatch, and today I'm joined in studio by Nancy Gilson, a former arts editor here at the paper and a current freelancer. This is a week to celebrate seemingly impossible dreams come true, and not just because Land Grant Brewing Company is hosting a donut party where you can grab a pastry and a pilsner at 11 a.m. Sunday. But seriously, that is pretty awesome. For those who watched the Lincoln Theater fall into disrepair over the years, its amazing rebirth 10 years ago is worth celebrating. And that's exactly what the community will be doing Sunday at the theater, where there will be live performances and art displays during an open house that begins at 2 p.m. And of course, what bigger dream is there than meeting your own Prince Charming? Dance lovers can see an elegant version of that dream come true when Ballet Met offers its production of Cinderella at the Ohio Theater starting Friday. But if you're Stuart Onan, an aerospace engineer turned writer, it might be a dream to become friends with, say, Stephen King, or have the Boston Red Sox win a World Series and write about it with Stephen King. Well, all that happened. The novelist and nonfiction writer from Pittsburgh has set many of his novels, particularly those about the Maxwell clan, in his home city, including his newest, Henry himself, which was just published April 9th. He will appear in conversation with Nancy at 7 p.m. April 16th at Gramercy Books in Bexley. Well, thanks for joining us, Stuart. I'll let Nancy get started here with the first question. Stuart, I really enjoyed Henry himself and your previous Maxwell books, and I know that Henry himself continues the story of the Maxwell family in Pittsburgh. And in the previous novel, Emily Alone, Henry had actually died, and the novel focused on his widow. And this one, of course, takes place earlier, and Henry's getting to be about 70, picking stock of his life. And I found these novels so spot on with details of the trials and emotions of older generations. So how did you get interested and so accomplished at doing this? Wow. Um, super long story. But I was going to write a horror novel set at a amusement park very much like Cedar Point. And I went up there and I did a lot of research on it. And I started to write the novel and I just couldn't get interested in it. And at some point I was writing about this little town where this incident takes place. And I met this woman driving in a station wagon through to her lake house for the very last time because she had to sell the lake house because her husband had died. And as soon as I thought that, I thought, wow, that sounds like a really big story, you know, a real big change in her life. Not just the death of her husband, but losing this you know, family heirloom, I guess, on a gathering place. And that's when I started writing Wish You Were Here. And it was going to be just about Emily, but I became fascinated in that sort of Tolstoyan spread that happens with every single character that I, that I ran into. And so the book got larger and larger and larger. And I kind of, you know, left Emily a little bit out of the picture. And she was there in the beginning, but she doesn't take center stage. So after I wrote Wish You Were Here, about eight years later, I was thinking, you know, I, I haven't really told Emily's story. And so I started thinking about Emily eight years after what happens in Wish You Were Here. And how does, how does she live? Um, how does she go on? by herself in this house. You know, her husband's been dead now for nine years. So I became fascinated with that. How does she endure that? And then, just a few years ago, I started to think about Henry and how he's, he's absent from those two books. And his story hasn't been told. So again, it's this idea of this untold story. And I became fascinated by, by what everybody else in the family thought about Henry versus how Henry sees his own life. You know, it just struck me when I was reading those books that I believe you're 59, is that right? 58, don't 58. push 58. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, that's horrible. You're 
you're 58. You're you're very young in comparison to Henry and Emily, and I'm not. I'm closer to their age. I thought you really nailed, you know, their concerns and the emotions of people that are over 60. How'd you do well, that? Hi, thank you. Well, you know, I mean, I have a lot of people around me who are that <laughs> age. My father, my father's now, he just turned 88 the other day. You know, and I've got my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, and also my memories of my mother and my aunt, who recently passed away as well. And, you know, just my grandparents and, you know, everybody that I've known and run into. And it may sound odd, but Pittsburgh is a rather, it's an older town. I think at one point the city area was the oldest city area in the country. So our, our neighbors, when they moved in on one side of us, were in their 80s, and on the other side of us were in their 80s. There's a lot of a lot of people that I can observe. And just ask, right? Yeah. You know, first-person sources <laughs> are the best. You know, sit down and ask them. I wrote a book called The Circus Fire in, what was it, 1999. And I knew I was going to be doing research for the book about Emily. So I, I brought a questionnaire to my readings, and I'd hand out a questionnaire to my audiences, which at the time were sort of middle-of-the-day library audiences in Connecticut, which meant an older crowd. And so I'd ask them about, you know, how has your neighborhood changed? Now, who do you miss? Who, who's a friend that you used to see all the time who's gone now? Where do you go every week? You know, basic stuff. Yeah. Um, and they were very honest. It's you know, amazing how open people are. And you know, when you say that you're writing something, you ask them a question, they'll answer it. Another thing that struck me about Henry was that he seems so typical of men of his generation who fought in World War II. And you only get like these little brief glimpses of what he went through, which really sounded like it was pretty horrific. Can you tell us a little bit more about both his backstory and why in the book you chose to just give those little snippets of his war experience? Well, at first, I mean, it's, it's a long, long time ago for him. He's lived an entire life since then. He was only in the war for, let's say, a year and a half to two years. But those memories are painful and still feel a little bit fresh at times. So when they pop up, they're usually very vivid and inescapable. They pop up at times and then ambush him. And so he has to sort of shove them back down. He's a very, the word for it, a button-down guy. Mm -hmm. He wants to keep everything peaceful. He avoids confrontation. He wants things just the way that they were. He's always fixing things and putting things back the way they were. And that's sort of been his M.O. his entire life, even before the war. He was a bit shy, a bit introverted. And that continues on with him. But these memories of the war I'll never get rid of. Yeah. Yeah, he's an engineer, a retired engineer. And I believe your undergraduate degree was in aerospace engineering. So is he your alter ego? Well, my father was an engineer as well, and his father was an engineer as well. Family business. <laughs> yes, it is a family business. My grandfather on my other side was sort of a self-taught architect. So, yeah, it, it's an amalgam of, you know, all the engineers I think I've ever known. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. And we're, we're very practical people, and yet, what's the word for it? We love a challenge. Yeah. We'll, we'll always take on some sort of challenge, and, and we always have to give in when the world shows that it's different than the way we thought it was. Yeah. And we always go in with some idea that it might be this way, but when you know events, experiments turn out the other way, we go, okay, that's the way the world is. So in this book and then the others about the Maxwells, readers get such a lovely, affectionate look at Pittsburgh. Steelers, the Pirates, the Weather, the Icy Roads, Mount Washington, and the, the lady at the church auction who says yins. So I haven't heard you say yins yet, but... <laughs> <laughs> We don't all say yin. Some of us actually say yun. Y-U-N-Z. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's a lesser known version for yun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yun. 
My grandfather's from Kentucky, so I still have some sort of Kentucky roots. Yeah. Uh, I say howdy. Much to my wife's embarrassment, I say howdy <laughs> to people. But you clearly must love Pittsburgh or, or enjoy writing about it. Well, born and bred, you know, it, it's it's my territory. It's the home place. I, I know it very, very well. And it's changed so much. I mean, like, like Columbus, it has changed so, so much that someone who's lived there their entire life, like Henry, doesn't quite recognize it. Uh, I think he says at one point that his father helped build the skyline and now he can't identify the building. And it's a, a very different place. Half of it is completely the way it, it was, you know, 50 50 years ago, um, and the other half is unrecognizable. So, do you plan to write more about the Maxwells? You know, I don't know. If you look at my other work, I usually don't write about the same thing twice, so it's very odd for me to go back and do three books about the same people. Although I am I'm a great admirer, you know, of course, of, of Philip Roth and his Zuckerman novels, or Updike and his Rabbit novels, Louise Erdrich and that sort of home place, Faulkner. Um, I don't know. You never say never. Yeah. But Sue Grafton always said there was a chance to go back and learn more about people that you already know. Oh, um, So it's nice, and there's a great comfort level that you're writing about, you know, Rufus again, or writing about Emily again, writing about their children. Yeah. Um, and their neighborhood, and even their neighbors, you know. There are neighbors that show up in all three books. So it's like a supporting cast is already there. I'm I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. Well, let's move on just a little bit and talk about your collaborations with Stephen King. How did those come about? Face in the Crowd, and then I believe the other one is Faithful, the two diehard Boston Red Sox fans chronicle the historic 2004 season. Very, very long subtitle. Very, very, <laughs> for a, a one-word title, it's a long subtitle. Yeah, we got to know each other. There was a little bit of a, a legal kerfuffle over a book originally titled Dear Stephen King back in 1997, which later was called The Speed queen and after that we, we corresponded for a while and then one day he called me up and he said hey how'd you like to go to the red sox game tonight i was like well sure i'd love to so i met him at the red sox game hung out and you know we have the same background you know we love the same sort of science fiction and horror fiction from the 50s and 60s and all the big movies and you know, we just sort of got along and uh so we started going to games a lot and when the 2004 season rolled around my editor at the double day was weirdly enough a yankee fan said would you like to write a book about the Red Sox this year. And I was like, well, I'll write about it, but I have to write it with Steve. And then my editor's like, well, that would be great. <laughs> and, you know, I asked Steve, and he said, well, you know, I'm finishing up The Dark Tower. I don't really have a lot of time to do that. And I said, well, look, you know, it'll be certain in, and then with Stephen King in real small letters, you do like 10% of it, I'll do 90% of it. You know, we'll get the crowd in the house, and we'll talk about the socks. Because I knew once he started writing about it, he wouldn't be able to stop. And that's just the way he is. He just takes <laughs> things on and just runs with them. You know, he writes so fluently, and, you know, and he thinks so differently than I do in terms of putting together paragraphs and putting together scenes. It was really neat to work with him, because it's like having a whole other mind, and a mind that understands story in this, this way, and really, with a, with a kind of genius that I don't quite have. So it was really, really neat to sort of move that story along. And then, of course, you know, the Red Sox ruined it by winning the World Series. Yeah. You know, it's supposed to be this, <laughs> supposed to be this chronicle of you know, how the most disappointing in the team, team in the whole world has the most faithful fans. Speaking right? of I mean, the most disappointing teams with the most faithful fans, do you have any advice for the Indians fans living here in central Ohio? Go to the game. Yeah. <laughs> go yeah. to the stadium. Don't sit home. Go. You know, I'm, I'm going to the, when I'm, I'm going to be up there, I think on the 19th in Cleveland. I'm going to the game on Friday night. All right. Definitely. Oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a nice stadium. The team is really good. 
and you know, the last couple of years they won the division, but you know, you'll you'll see the game. There'll be like you know, fifteen thousand people there. There'll be nobody in the upper deck, and you're like, what is going on here? Yeah. You got a winning club. Get out there and support them. Yeah, and, I'm a huge. No, maybe, maybe they got spoiled. Maybe the Cavs spoiled them. Yeah, you know? that could maybe be. they got they got the championship and they're fine with. But get out there and support them. Hey, the Browns are turning the corner. You know, this could be like a golden age up there. Yeah. So, are you still a big Red Sox fan? Oh yeah. Yeah. Hey, we were at the World Series last year. You yeah. got it. You know, come on. Winning the World Series, that's not going to dampen your enthusiasm for your club. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> what about the poor Pirates, though? They need your support. <laughs> well, we're at the opener. It was five hours long. Once the shadows <laughs> fell over our seats, it was about 25-degree windshield, and we blew a 4 nothing lead and lost. Oh, like, oh, well, I believe okay. that both the Indians and the Red Sox also lost their home openers. So there you go. Oh, Wait, well, no, Sox, I think the Indians Sox won. Sox the Indians won. No, the Sox, Sox opened on the road. So they're, okay. they come on the night, the day that my book comes out, okay. they open at Fenway and they're going to put up the brand new flag. Uh, Mookie's going to get his MVP trophy, his gold glove, and his silver slugger. So it's going to be an exciting day. I wish I could be there for it. Cool. I'll be here in Pittsburgh reading from Henry. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's next for you? What are you writing about next? I don't really know. I'm not sure. I've, I've, I've got a few different things sort of, you know, simmering, but nothing that's sort of caught fire yet. I'm not sure. Yeah, and I think that's all I should really say rather than jinx one or the other. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I, it's, it's always nice to get back to the desk, but then, you know, you got to go out on tour and you got to see this, you know, get out there. With it. And it's funny because I, mean, I finished Henry at least a year ago, so it feels like it's in the past, but now, you know, you're going to forward to it coming out. Yeah. Well, it, it's also sort of a, new, a new thing for Henry. You know, the world hasn't met Henry yet, so it'll be, I'll be kind of interested to see how people meet him, especially Emily. Can I ask you a process question? I mean, Stephen King has written about writing and, and his style. I'm curious as to maybe how closely you follow that or how much you differ from that. What's your writing style like when you're putting together a novel? Well, Steve can write up and wants to write up to 10 pages a day, which I think is just far, far too many for me. I'm, I'm slow. Um, I'll, write, I'll try to write one page a day. A one-page double space, which is around 300 words. But the idea is to just keep it moving forward. Just keep it going forward. And as you're moving it forward, you're taking notes, you're fixing things here that make another change there. So very incremental, extremely slow. I guess that's my style. But trying to write every day. I don't have another job, so it's, it's 9 to 5. Uh, take half an hour off for lunch, watch, you know, Seth Meyers from last night. Yeah, it's very steady. It's a lovely way to, to work, uh, you know, falling into that world in the morning and you know putting in your, your your corrections from the night before and just you know slowly getting into that sort of trance state falling into that other world it's, it's kind of like reading and when you're reading a really really good book you just want to be reading that book you don't want to do anything else when you're writing and the writing's going well it's that same way you just want to sort of be there in that other world with those characters and they're there every day you know for in the case of Henry for three years you know there they are the next day and you're hanging out with them you don't know what's going to happen. You might discover something. And when you do, it's very exciting. And some days you write well, and some days you write poorly. But every day you can make it a little bit, little bit, little better. I hope I'm remembering correctly, but I thought that I had read an interview with you from one time where you had said that you always carry a part of whatever you're working on with you, whether it's the last sentence or the last page or whatever, so that there's something for you to work off of. Is that right? Is that something you still do? Yeah, yeah. You, you want to you stay close to the characters. You want to stay close to you know the scene that you're working on. So it's a trick that actors use. When they want to sort of stay in character, they'll keep that script with them. So like when they're on the bus, they can sort of go back to that scene and, and look at 
what those characters said and try to retain that mood, staying close, you know, being intimate. And that, to me, that's, that's what I love about fiction, is really feeling what it is to be this other person. Mm. And the only way you can do that is to really sort of drop, drop deep within them. And sometimes you have to carry that mask of the character out into the world with you, you know, and keeping the script with you or, or you know, the pages with you helps a lot. Do you read a lot of other contemporary American fiction? And if so, who do you like? Who, who, what authors do you love to read? Oh, just tons of people, um, but not not always contemporary. You know, it, it reaches back. I mean, right now, I'm sort of poking around in terms of what I'm doing next. I'm reading, let's see, and then they came to the end by Joshua Ferris, uh-huh. uh, Angel Head by Greg Bottoms, Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, wow. uh-huh. uh, Sport in the Pastime by James Salt, Articles of War by Nick Arvin, A Good School by Richard Yates. So Long See Tomorrow by Maxwell, John Updike's very last story collection, My Father's Tears. Just a bunch, a bunch of stuff. And I'll typically wander around my office and just grab stuff off the shelves and sit down and sort of dig in. Yeah. There's just so much. I mean, it's like an avalanche. Sounds like you're a book um, collector. A little bit, but, you know, it's my job, so, you know, <laughs> that's my excuse. Yeah. You know, I get, at any time I'm allowed to read because it's my job. You know, it, it's the, the perfect kind of life for someone who loves books and, and libraries. Yeah, it's ideal. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, between that and visits for research to Cedar Point, that's not a bad <laughs> life at all. <laughs> Oh, that was great. It's a shame that I never wrote the book, but yeah. I read I read about 130 pages of the book, but it just, it just never happened. But yeah, we spent like, I'd say about 10 days there, stayed there on campus so that we got to see the park after dark and when it was closing down, and I got to interview people and go behind the scenes. You know, just, it was amazing. But this was so long ago now. This is 20 years ago now. It's completely different. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've been back since, and it's a whole different workforce that's in there. It's funny how it's changed. I guess you can probably probably, you know, write another novel on, on, on the changes in the park over the years. Yeah, but, yeah well, it's, it's a job where you can completely satisfy your curiosity about anything, anything at all. And if you want to learn about it, you're given free reign to do that. And I tend to write a lot about American subcultures, which drives my translators crazy because there'll be this, like, this wacky slang, you know. You know. I was writing about, like, the meth epidemic in Oklahoma you know, 20 years ago, which is still there. Yeah. Um, and my, my translator's like, how am I supposed to translate this? Or baseball. They can't do baseball. Forget <laughs> it. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really a lot of fun. And listen, we're wishing luck to the Indians, but good luck to the Red Sox, okay? <laughs> well, thanks, Ryan. You know, I, I like Cleveland. A lot of old Red Sox on there. Tito is up there. Oh, and, yeah. yeah, that's you know, right. Like, you know, and being from Pittsburgh, you know, we actually like Cleveland. You know, in the old days, there was this sort of animosity, but I think, you know, having gone through the hard times together, you know, I think there's a little love there. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Also, also, a great shame that the NFL, you know, took the Browns from them. That, no that kidding. Just doesn't fly. Yeah. That does not fly. So we've got great sympathy for them. There you go. <laughs> well, you're a man after our own heart. Yeah. We really appreciate it. And we're looking forward to seeing you when you come to visit our town. So Nancy will have plenty of excellent questions to follow up with you then. Yes, Stuart, I'm looking well, forward you, to, to our conversation. We're going to be at Gramercy Books in Bexley, and that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, Tuesday the 16th at 7 p.m. Exactly. Good. All right. Take care. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Nancy. (laughs) And thank you all for listening to Life in the 614. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play Music. We hope to have you back next week. Until then, keep enjoying your own life in the 614.